Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the very special books edition of Slate Money. I'm excited about this one. I've been lining it up for a little while. Slate Money is normally your guide to the business and finance news of the week. But this week, we are taking a step back into the wonderful world of nonfiction books, many of which are fabulous. And on today's show, we have not one but two special guests here to tell us all about their new books. This is excellent. First, we are going to talk to John Lanchester about his book, How to Speak Money. And then the very talented Jake Halpin will join us and talk about his book, Bad Paper, Chasing Debt from Wall Street to the Underworld. And we'll close with a discussion of our favorite money books and the ones that have most shaped our thinking. Thanks to listener David Katz for that suggestion. But first, let me introduce my regular guests, Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And Jordan Weissman, Slate's Moneybox columnist, back from Points East. You were in Paris? I was in Paris and Lyon. I uh, walked my way through Paris and ate my way through, through Lyon, and I'm very happy to have done it. Fantastic. And so now, let me introduce John Lanchester. John, what is your new book? It's called How to Speak Money, What the Money People Say and What They Really Mean, and it's about the language of finance and economics. And, Kathy, you've, you've read this book. I read this book. It's written by a novelist. John, you're a novelist, are you not? I, I do think of that as my day job. And which means it's gloriously readable, is it not? Yeah, this is like... I'll tell you what, it's so different from the books I usually read. Um, When I started reading it, the introduction made me want to like pull out a highlighter and highlight a couple lines. And then the first chapter made me want to highlight a bunch of paragraphs. And at some point, I just said to myself, oh, this is what good writing looks like. (laughs) I'm so unused to it in this context. Um, But I, you know, it's a really great book. I I just pretty much want to just talk about all the things I like about it. 
Um, and then I have a couple, a couple quibbles. But um, so, you know, John, why don't you introduce what it's actually about? And then I can, I can sort of be the cheering section over here. I, it grew out of a novel I was, wrote about London called Capital. It came out a couple of years ago. And to understand modern London, you have to take an interest in finance and economics because the city of London, as we call our version of Wall Street, is the, one of the main drivers of change because London's changed astonishingly over the last 30 years or so. And um, I got interested in the subject as a way of educating myself and finding out, you know, as it were, how this stuff works. And for me, I found that the main obstacle to understanding it was to do with language. And it's embarrassing to admit, but it's just literally not knowing what the words mean. That was the thing that made it difficult to follow the news, to read the papers, to read people like Felix. And and that first step, which also seems to me the most important step was just literally finding out what the language means and that's really what this book is and if it had existed i wouldn't have written it but i've written it hoping to spare spare readers that um you know that period of learning because i do think it's really important to follow this stuff yeah and it resonates with me so strongly because as a mathematician in 2006 going into finance in 2007 i was exactly where you were and i was like what is this stuff. And I happened to show up at exactly the right time to see everything fall apart. But one of the things I liked the most, because I remember that feeling, was your sense of evoking um, this kind of, this need for permission to even use this language. Um, that, And I, I kind of only gave myself permission because I had a PhD in mathematics and I had a job as a quantitative hedge fund. But otherwise, I don't think I would have allowed myself to even think that I had the right to speak to speak money there's a how old were you john you say you say this in the book when you finally learned what the word fiscal means fiscal and monetary nearly 50 um and and kathy how about you because this is there's no shame to this i think there is a bit of shame don't you think (laughs) that you know we we, you know having heard these terms a gazillion times by the time you're in in middle adulthood you know it is it is a bit shameful not to have made the effort i feel i feel embarrassed on my own behalf the extent to which i didn't really actually know what a bond was i feel i was surprisingly old when i learned what the word fiscal meant but then to kathy's point there was another period probably of you know at least a couple of years, where I was pretty sure I knew what it meant, but I would never actually use it in conversation or write it down because I wasn't that sure. Well, okay, so now that we're talking about shame, I kind of feel shamed to tell you that I learned about fiscal policy, what fiscal policy really referred to in this podcast. Maybe the second week we were talking um, because we were we were comparing fiscal policy and monetary policy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> but, you know, I'll also say that I am very much an advocate of removing the shame from this process. That's one of the reasons I started Math Babe, my blog. Actually, the reason I started was because I was so sick of talking to people in mathematics about finance and realizing they didn't know what I was talking about because the language was so you know, obfuscating. So I actually like that one of my first posts was like, what does it mean to be seasonally adjusted? Um, And my audience was intentionally like educated people who just didn't happen to know this language. So I really love the idea behind this book. I I deeply believe in that project that, you know, and um, when we talk about shame, uh, the shame is because I hadn't asked, you know, the whole thing should be about asking. And, and that thing that you mentioned about having permission to understand, which a lot, I mean, I know I didn't, you know, I felt that, I had it because my father worked for a bank in the days when banking was very diff- different. But I know for a fact that most people don't. They feel kind of defeated and pre-baffled, is how I put it in the book. They feel kind of defeated in advance as if they know for a fact they'll never be able to get their heads around it. And the result is a kind of democratic deficit. 
Yeah, and you talked also about how this, well, this setup, as it were, like it wasn't maybe intentionally built by anyone, but the setup whereby some people understand the secret language and most people don't was kind of a win-win situation up until the financial crisis. That people were like happy to let the you know experts be in charge. And I remember that feeling. And I remember starting to work at DE Shot and working with Larry Summers. And I'm like, oh, cool, I'm working with one of these guys. And then things changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I just want to say the book is eminently readable. And I particularly appreciate the references to Doctor Who because I watch Doctor Who with my kids all the time and like I feel like my kids could read this book. No, everything should have more Doctor Who references. Thank you. You can never have too many Doctor Who references. But there's a theme which you introduce at the beginning. There there are three parts to the book and the main part, the second part, is a glossary. Um, And the very first entry in the glossary, now on this podcast we have we all bring a number every week, which is an important number, which we like to talk about. You start off this glossary with like, with what you think of as like the most important number in the book. And it's a little bit surprising given how much time you spend sort of bashing the way that the world economy works. But t- tell us what your number is. Well, I, I invent a term. I call it something like the AAAAA. I can't remember how many A's there are number. It's 16,438. And it's the number of how many children fewer under the age of five die every day compared to 20 years ago. And um, it's a number Melinda Gates writes about in the Gates Foundation's annual letter. And um, it is a, a child's life being saved uh, roughly every five seconds compared to the mortality rate five years ago. And I read about it to make the point that you know, the world is changing very, very quickly. And one of the very important ways in which the world is changing is in relation to infant mortality and uh, absolute poverty. The number of people in absolute poverty is halved in 20 years. And so it's part of this strange picture um, that we have of the world, which is of inequality between countries going down at the same time as inequality in countries is sharply increasing. And it's, it's a, I'm not sure there's ever been a historic phase quite like it. And if I knew precisely what to make of it, I would say so. But I just think it's a, it's a thing we need to, need to bear in mind. The world is growing sharply more equal and sharply less equal at the same time. The last part of your book, the, I don't know, the end of the uh, last chapter, is really incredible. And it, it just it skips over, I mean, it doesn't skip over, it delves into, like, possibly the most number of subjects per page, the density. <laughs> like, the glossary spends a lot of time on various terms, which are great. And then you have, like, this action-packed last chapter, which I really love, um, which I suggest everyone should read. And it, the $1.2 billion, the number that came out at me from the last chapter there, $1.2 billion young people will be looking for a job in the next 10 years, I think is what you said. According to the UN, yeah. But you also say, and I have to to sort of fact check your book here, you say that the world is getting younger, which is not true. The world is getting older. Um, You're absolutely right that the median age in the world is 27 right now, but um, in 1950 it was 23, in 2050 it's going to be 35. Um, This is largely thanks to exactly what you're talking about, child mortality, actually. When your children are pretty much certain to live, you wind up having many fewer children. And also the one-child policy in China. I take the point. I guess I'm switching trains slightly because if you're absolutely right as as a proportion, but because the population is growing so sharply, the number of young people is going up. I mean, in fact... If you want to be pessimistic about things like child mort- yeah, about um, absolute poverty, you can point out actually that in sub-Saharan num- 
Africa, the proportion's gone down, but the number's gone up because the population's growing. Um, and I was just speaking to this point about the number of young people there are going to be looking for work and quite likely, I think, feeling disenfranchised and with a sense that the social contract's been rewritten between the generations. And that's certainly the feeling in, in places like France, isn't it, that you can, or Spain, that the older generation is sort of struggling through somehow, but the younger generation, who just can't even get their foot in the employment door, they're really doomed. And as if you have two different deals in the society. I saw someone do the numbers that an Italian person is 60, who's retiring from a state job, has paid half as much into the state in return for twice the level of benefits that an Italian of 30 is going to get. I mean, that's that's a really fundamentally different social contract between the generations. I just, I just do want to say one thing that I, I kind of disagree with in the book, and I l- want you to respond. And it's really probably not too much of a disagreement, but you did talk about the great thing about the way economic, economists talk to each other, the stripped-down nature of the language, that it allows them to have really precise disagreements. And I, I, you know, in other words, that it's, you've stripped away um, morality, and then you just talk about economic terms, and then they can, they can just go at it. It's good and bad, right? I agree with you that it allows them to have that conversation, but it also creates this larger divide because every term that is actually touching a moral fiber of me has been stripped away. And so that that sort of also creates this this abyss between the the normal population and the economists. I, I agree with both parts of that, and I am ambivalent about it, but I quite like the fact that the absence of the moral language makes it less hypocritical. I think there's so much of our public discourse is dominated by people making, you know, deferring to opinions they think they're supposed to have, what in the 18th and 19th century would have been called Kant. I do like the the technical way economists can talk to each other but obviously it has a really significant human cost someone in fact after the i did an event with felix uh, the other, at a bookshop the other day and someone came up who from um, a leverage buyout firm and he was talking about the um this this about he, he talked about dissociation that they quite often use the language to dissociate and they were looking at a business model and they were talking about churn and he said he suddenly realized that it was, you know, because they were just looking at the numbers, and it was a residential care home, and churn was people dying. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was, was the other thing. It's not only does it make it a divide in language, but it it allows economists to turn around and use this sort of sanitized language to affect public policy and make it seem like there aren't moral attachments to their decisions. But or, there are. Or, or you, the, I, I think I'm going to end here with an example of John's wonderful prose. He has an entry in his book about. V-O-S-L, um, which is a value of a statistical life, which is, a, which is actually related to another one of my favorite terms, which you find in philanthropy a lot, which is Q-A-L-Y, which is the quality adjusted life year. And, and you, when, you know, when you're spending your philanthropic dollar and you're working for, the, for Melinda Gates, you, you think to yourself, how many Q-A-L-Ys can I get per dollar spent? It's this highly quantitative way of looking at life. And John says, you say in, in this book, there's something beautifully chilling and amoral about the V-O-S-L. And that, that, that's great language as well. But it is beautiful in its own way, I think. Yeah, there is something, you know, is, uh, I think one of the things I like about the language of money and the way people use it is that it, when people are talking candidly and privately, it is like hearing mob bosses talking to each other. 
you know, and you never actually get to be in that room. You never actually get to be in the room where Tony Soprano and his peers are discussing their business affairs. But in the world of finance and economics, you, you know, when they're talking about as were things like churn or VOSL or something like that, you are getting very close to that thing of a kind of a purely instrumental, amoral use of language. And and I mean, you know, I'm a, I am appalled by it, obviously, and that's not how I see the world and all that. And at the same time, part of me is really interested that that kind of discourse goes on. Well, you also have the traders coming in, too. The trader language is coming from a different place, but yeah. it's really Which is much more profane and abrasive. And <laughs> It's a fascinating yeah, yeah. book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming in. And now, through the magic of podcasting, let's re-welcome both Jake Halpin and... Jordan Weissman. I hardly noticed I was gone. <laughs> um, we are going to talk about your book, Jake. It's, um, it's about debt collectors. But first, uh, we want to hear a bit more about you. You've written three, four books? Yeah, I've, this is my third nonfiction book. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you have young adult novels as yeah. well? Yeah, I also write for, you know, haunted forests and iceberg fortresses and that's fantastic yeah that, that it's great no fact checking you know i get to in- channel and, and you know from fact checking because you're a regular contributor to the new yorker yes i have no fact checking yeah is, is i i have never actually personally gone through the new yorker fact checking process what is it like um, you know, it's, it, you're kind of sweating bullets, uh, because you, you actually, it's like, it's like, you know, the people that clean their house before the cleaner gets there, which seems ridiculous. Why do you hire the cleaner? But you don't want to be embarrassed when the cleaner gets there. It's basically the same idea. You don't want the fact checker to see your dirty underwear. So you're like frantically trying to fact check it yourself before you give it in. That's basically my experience. I, I look forward to sweating bullets one day. You never know. Um, but in any case, uh, this book you wrote uh, was excerpted. Some of us remember this a f- few months ago in the New York Times magazine, which has its own fleet of fact checkers. Yes. Um, I'm sure they found nothing to worry about. <laughs> um, tell, us, tell us the story. So the way that I got into this was my mother was being hounded by a debt collector for a debt she didn't owe. And my mother paid, which is kind of amazing because my mother's extremely tough cookie. The idea that she was bullied was mind-boggling to me. So I wrote this investigative piece for The New Yorker about the world of debt collections in Buffalo, New York, which is where a lot of collections efforts are based. And I hung out with this guy who was a collector, who was an ex-con, who had a small shop on the east side of Buffalo. And just went through his life. He he would buy these spreadsheets. Basically, that's what we're talking about. Because when the when the um, banks can't um, collect on an unpaid account, they sell off these spreadsheets with debtors' info for pennies on the dollar. And they kind of work their way down the debt food chain. Each subsequent debt buyer sells off the accounts that they can't collect. So this guy was at the way bottom of the debt food chain. And I wrote the story about his life, how he's barely scraping by, and how he was doing this instead of selling drugs and and whatnot. And then what happened was is Brad Pitt wanted to turn it into an HBO show or his producer did. So they sent me back to Buffalo with the screenwriter and no one wanted to talk to me as an investigative journalist. But when I was there with the screenwriter 
everyone wanted to talk to a Brad Pitt production. <laughs> so one night I go out to dinner with this guy who used to be a banker and his partner who used to be an armed robber and they're in business together and they start telling me the story about how their debt was stolen and the former armed robber had to go and retrieve it from this kind of underworld of debt. And the screenwriter's kind of nodding his head and I'm thinking, holy shit, this is just a crazy nonfiction tale. And so I just started like basically courting these guys and trying to get them to give me the nonfiction version of their tale, which was basically what this book was. I'm really curious how you managed to actually ingratiate yourself. Because, I mean, the characters in in this book are amazing. There's one who is literally a a polygamous black Muslim who arms himself with a machete and a bunch of guns in order to basically go do, not quite a shakedown, but go deal with some business at one point. I mean, these are the kinds of characters that are coming up in this book. Um, Forget the armed robber. He's the former armed robber. He's actually probably one of the most savory people at points. Um, How did you win their trust to write this book? Well, there's two things. One is um, they, HBO was developing this TV series for a while. For a while, it's kind of stalled. But these guys all were in love with The Wire. So what, the way that I just presented this initially, as I said, look, you're, the fictional version of this will be killer, but I want to write a nonfiction companion book that's like the true stories. And that that helped me get my foot in the door with some of them. And then the other thing was... I've basically been working on this project on and off for four years, and it was just persistence. I would just check in with them, hey, what's up? And like the the guy that's the polygamist, black Muslim, gun, knife-toting, um, you know, shakedown guy, he was – I knew I wanted him even though he's only a bit player in the story. And it was just two and a half years of like just, hey, what's up? Do you think you might want to talk? And one day he was like – if you can come to my mosque tomorrow, like evening at 6 p.m., I'll talk to you. So I like, got on a plane the next day and <laughs> was at his mosque, like with my pen and paper. Um, so it was just a lot of it was just persistence. So wait, hang on. I, I want to just come back and talk about this whole thing. What we are talking about here is what most people consider to be a completely legitimate part of the financial services industry. And you're saying that there's absolutely nothing legitimate about it. Yeah, the big picture here. So, yeah, basically you get a call on the phone from a debt collector who says you owe this amount of money on your Bank of America account or your, your furniture rental or your old cell phone bill. And you, or I would assume that I was talking to the original creditor, like the people that I made the, the contract with. Or at the very least, someone who has legitimate title to that debt. Precisely. And, uh, and that's not the case. Much of the time... You're talking to someone, as I said, way down the debt food chain who's bought this for pennies on the dollar and may not even own it because we're just talking about data here. Um, you, you know, at one point, I actually confront one of these, the guy that, that's a collecting on a debt that's not his, who's not a Buffalo street hustler. He lives in Beverly Hills. And his people, are his employees are collecting on this debt, which they don't own. And when I finally get him in Beverly Hills... He says, well, yeah, let me check out that file. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, we bought this one from a, a debt broker in Florida. Boy, we got screwed on this one. It was triple sold to three different people, and the dates were manipulated. And I said, well, what do you think about that? He said, well, 
it's just data you're buying in this business, you know, kind of like <laughs> that's just the way it runs. Oops. So, yeah. <laughs> but the data, of course, are people's lives. Right. These and, are, you right. know, these spreadsheets, each, you know, row on this spreadsheet uh, with a name is, 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 is a story of someone who for one reason or another, and, and it, they might be collected on by several people, none of whom own the debt properly. So what, what I liked to, about your book, um, which I really enjoyed, is very readable, um, was um, – you know, how you brought that alive, that that ability that the debt, most of the debt collectors had to kind of ignore the other side of the and, – and you didn't ignore it. That's another thing I liked about it. You actually met some of the people that whose debt was being collected and you profiled them and you made us understand their struggle. For the most part, was a struggle. You had a lot of working mothers. Um, you had one guy, AJ, at the yeah. end of the book who just literally barred a bunch of stuff and then said, hey, I don't want to pay this back, which was good too because you always have that. Yeah. Whenever you have that conversation about debt, yeah. people always – talk about the AJs and make it seem like, oh, you know, these people, they should pay their money back. Um, So you, you really, you really brought alive this idea, the poor pitted against the even poorer, where you have these people who are collecting and they're like, look, those people are, yeah, we're screwing those people. We're possibly taking money from people who've already paid back this money. We're possibly taking more money than we should from the people who do still owe money. But I need to, I need to feed my kids. So you have that kind of explanation of why, People can sort of abuse each other, um, it, which is a pretty reasonable story, except when you get to the Beverly Hills story, which was kind of a, sort of an outlier where you're like, no, that's not reasonable. Um, so it's, it's really good to see. The one quibble I'd have with the book is that it it's kind of buried at the very end. What, what the advice to the debtors would actually be. Ah, well, for that, you can go to the Great Fusion interactive game built in <laughs> conjunction with Mr. Jake Halpin himself. Oh, was that built with that? I, I didn't understand. It's okay. called Bad Paper on Fusion.net, and you can... Um, and you can see for yourself like how good you would be at trying to navigate these these treacherous waters where you to find yourself in, t- in this situation. And I did play that game, actually. I played the uh, played Bad Paper. Did I, you get off the hook for the money you owed? Yeah, because I knew. Because, and what I was going to refer to was the Debt Resistors Operation Manual, yeah. which was um, you know, part of uh, Occupy, which was put out. That really has not only advice, but actually like form letters that you can tear out of the Operation Manual put your name in and like send to the people trying to collect on your debt. And it's actually helped quite a few people. I would have loved to see that a little bit more front and center. Like the, like the, the two facts that I learned from your book, which I pretty much already knew, but it was so, were so important. Um, namely that you always show up for court mm-hmm. and then you always contest that they actually own their debt. You want proof that they own the debt because they almost never have that that data, that documentation. One thing that's uh, incredibly striking, I think, necessary context for this book is is just the sheer number of Americans who debt collect who deal with debt collectors. I mean, I think it's now thirty five percent or something that have a debt in collection, um, and they're dealing with this industry that is just a swamp. Um, and you talk a little bit about that in the book about why it hasn't been cleaned up, why it hasn't been a priority. I, I thought I think our listeners would be interested to hear a little bit more about why that is. Why is it that you have these guys who are just double selling debt and trying to collect from people who don't? And there hasn't been some sort of a clampdown until maybe very recently. Uh, is there a regulator of this industry? It, there, there, are, there is a regulator now. I mean, but it's not clear who who's responsible for what though. So, for example. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or the CFPB, is now the kind of most visible uh, regulator in this space. But and the, the, the scope of places that they're watching is somewhat limited because they're policing now the 175 largest collection businesses 
uh, in the industry, but there are 9,600 plus collection shops. And so, uh, and most of those are these small shops, about 42% of them are shops of four people or less. And no one's really policing them. There's this moment in the book, actually, where I go and I meet with the New York State Attorney General, and they're often hailed as like the best of the state attorney generals. And um, this woman at that office, there's two people policing Buffalo, um, which is the capital of this world. So it's like, imagine, you know, two cops on the beat to, to, to police the capital. She's got a list of 325 companies that she thinks are troublesome that are her most wanted list. And she's trying to, to, to manage this. And the one that the, the one story is she's going after this one place called International Arbitration Services because they're doing all kinds of bad stuff like threatening arrest and making, you know, bullying and coercing debtors, but she can't figure out where they are. And one day someone knocks on the door and says, hey, I work at, at International Arbitration Services and I want to talk to you about what's going on there. And I, I just walked over here and she said, what do you mean walked over? They were around the corner. Um, and it's not a knock against them. It's just that was the limited amount of, of, of manpower they had to police this. So, you know, I, I think that, yes, um, it's an improvement from where it was, but it's 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 still, you know, needs a lot of headway in terms of, you know, regulating and monitoring this business. It also sounded like from the, the data you had in your book that even when they do get caught, the fines are actually smaller than the profits. So what kind of incentives do they really have, even if they think they're on that list? Yeah, they can pack up and move. The, 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 that same woman in the New York City Attorney General's office says, yeah, they pack up and move to Georgia because Georgia, it's, it's easier to operate. And then I go to I interview one guy in prison who, um, who's telling me, like, yeah, you know, this is so much better business than drugs because you can make more profits. And if you get busted, you know, it's a much lighter sentence um, and lesser fine. The, the one hope – this is, this is all a pretty dispiriting conversation. But the one hope I have is that the way this gets cleaned up at least partially is not through regulation and it's not through all of these people suddenly becoming saints overnight. But rather it's through the – big credit card companies and other creditors stopping selling off their bad debts to third-party collectors, which anecdotally is happening, that people like J.P. Morgan yeah. aren't doing that anymore. That's is, true. Is that helping? Yeah. I mean, their paper, what they call paper, this debt, is is becoming harder to find now for these debt buyers. And I think that Chase not selling their debt and suing on their debt is is adding to this kind of drying up of the paper. You would think that the banks would be worried enough about their reputation that they wouldn't want their debt unpaid customer accounts getting in the hands of these ex-cons in Buffalo. But that hasn't motivated them um, really. I mean, Chase has stopped, but the rest of these big banks are doing it. I mean, the one thing that I've heard is that the debt buyers themselves at the top of the food chain are now promising, if we buy your debt, we won't resell it as a way of trying to, you know, uh, entice the, 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 the creditors to, to, to kind of sell to them. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I, I've I've lost a little bit of faith in the idea that the, that the industry is going to regulate itself or do what's, you know, common sense to protect its brand reputation. I, I guess I do think that it's going to have to be regulation that, that makes real change happen. And, and just to, to clear up this whole food chain metaphor here, the, the top of the food chain is the people who lend you the money in the first place. It's the car dealer, it's the credit card company, or conceivably the hospital. Correct. 
the next layer down are these like big public companies that you're talking about, who then buy the debts when the original creditors can't collect. Right. And they're buying the stuff called paper. Right. And when they do that, they're not normally buying formal title to the paper. They're just buying a spreadsheet. And then if they can't collect, then it starts trickling down lower and lower on this food chain to seedier and seedier characters. That's right. Are there any good actors in this industry? Yeah, there are. I mean, it depends what you define good actor by. But I mean, in terms of following the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is basically like, you know, you can only call between such and such times. You can't, you know, call family members and disclose information about the debt. I mean, the the, the big players like Encore Capital and Portfolio Recovery Assets that are the publicly traded companies, they follow those rules because they don't want to run amok of, of, of the law. Um, you could quibble with whether or not it's, 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 it's it's ethical or it's right to be kind of, you know, hounding poor people over debts that have been inflated with interest. But I follow this one package of debt that gets stolen um, and it, it gets retrieved at gunpoint. Um, and when I talk to some of the debtors and I start explaining, do you know the crazy circuitous journey that your debt has been on? It was, you know, guys in Buffalo had a showdown with guns and retrieved it, you know, and th- they were just kind of flabbergasted. I mean, the other point that I just want to make a little bit of storytelling here. My, my original story about the banker and the, and, the, and the armed robber, when I first heard them that they'd gone into business together, the banker was going to buy this, this, this um, paper and the armed robber was going to kind of help him with this venture, I thought it sounded like the strangest odd couple of all time. But what the banker quickly told me was, I know that if something goes wrong in this business, I don't have much of a recourse in terms of like suing someone. I'm not going to be able to call the, uh, the regulators to help me out. So I I've got Brandon here who can go down and give his speech if I did 10 years in the can. You don't want to mess with me or I'm going to bust your teeth in to kind of help him create some order and accountability in a marketplace that resembles the Wild West in many ways. That's a pretty fair Boston accent. I'm from Boston. Okay, good. (laughs) I tried my best. So a great book is called Bad Paper. It's by Jake Halpin. Go buy it. And um, Jake, we have all done our... Bidding from David Katz, um, who sent us an email a few weeks ago saying he wants a reading list. Um, the book he's looking for the books which have been most influential in, in framing, you know, the way we look at this world of business and finance. And I felt that there are four of us here, and so we're going to give Mr. Katz four books. So since you're the guest, you can go first. What's your What's your influential book in this line of? My influential book is a oldie but goodie. It's Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. Um, they just came out with the 25th anniversary edition of it. Uh, I read this book right when I get out of college. It's 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 what inspired me to want to write narrative um, nonfiction. Uh, it, it basically uh, is his account of leaving. Uh, uh, university and then entering Wall Street and working in the bonds market as as a trader. And he does what he does it so well is that it's a first person narrative and it's really about his experience. But he doesn't get in the way of the story at all. He he's kind of a a, a Dante's guide to the inferno. Um, and there's just so many memorable scenes. Some of my favorite stuff is early on in the book when he's talking about being at Princeton and applying like half of the students are applying to be at the same bank and the interview is totally farcical the people that are interviewing him are people that have worked in the business for all of one year 
And uh, if you mention the fact that you want to make money in the interview, they immediately end the interview and kick you out of the room and disqualify you, even though that's obviously why everyone is there. Um, and there's just so many moments. He has such a such a keen wit uh, and dry wit and, and, and brings this world to life. And, and there's in a way that's just just so charming and engaging and you, you're learning about the bonds market and the subprime mortgage market and you're not even realizing it because you're being so entertained. It, it is a, a genuine classic. The book that made Michael Lewis's reputation. Um, Kathy, how about you? So I, I'm going to choose there's a lot of good books out there actually about <clears throat> especially since the financial crisis because it's been like inspiring to a lot of people. Um, what I particularly like for various reasons is called The Banker's New Clothes. And I'm going to try to pronounce the names of the authors, Anat Admati and Martin Helwig. Um, so a couple of things about this book. First of all, they do an excellent job of explaining kind of in plain English, kind of pretty complicated things about how banks work, how accounting works. Um, and and they also they also really present this this concept of a stakeholder really well. And, and they dispel a bunch of myths. So, for example, when they talk about regulation, they talk about you know, who is this expensive for and who is it, who who would object to this and why would they object to it? And they, they make really clear sort of analogies with things like chemical companies that pollute in the water. They don't want to have to pay to clean up the water, but the people, you know, in the neighboring town don't also don't want to have to clean up the water. So this is a concept of externalities, the concept of like, um, why are people protesting against regulation and calling it expensive when it's only expensive for them, but not it, it's not expensive for us, the taxpayers? So they do a great job of, and then they actually propose to have like a much much larger amount of um, capital by the banks, less leverage. And and what I one of the things I appreciate about them is they don't explain this; they don't have a precise number about exactly how much they're just like, well, it's 3% now, we want it more like 20 or 30%. They don't explain exactly why, how they got this number. They don't try to fancy it up with mathematical, you know, notation or, you know, they don't have some fancy economic model. But what they do is they're like, you know what, other companies that aren't in finance, that's what they do. And we don't see why financial companies are so different from other companies. And I've never actually heard an except, argument. Except for that they're much more dangerous. <laughs> exactly. I've just, you know, it's just so commonsensical. So I guess all I'm saying is they, they've really managed to, like, make um, fancy finance stuff common sense. And they so I appreciate how much I've learned from that book. And I also appreciate how they taught me to explain these kinds of things to people. So if you want to understand the capital structure of banks, this is the place to go. Uh, Jordan, what's your book? I'm going to go with, um, I don't know if it's the most influential, but I think it's an important one, which was There is Power in a Union by Philip Dre. Um, and the reason it, it, it's called The Epic Story of Labor in America uh, is a big, thick tome. It's all from the very beginnings of the labor movement when it was, you know, women in Massachusetts working in, you know, essentially in textiles. Um, and the reason I think it's important is because we kind of take for granted today uh, essentially the rights we have as workers and whatnot. And just it's really useful to go back through the whole history and see the sort of blood, sweat, and bullets that were literally involved in uh, winning basic rights uh, for American workers. And it's also good to get that sense of history just to see what it was like when, I mean, you had Pinkerton guards clashing with labor activists and, and, and going, you know, in, in really violent moments where it seemed like at points the country was coming apart and realizing that this is, um, in a way, things that we see in other developing countries are, are, have happened before and aren't necessarily new. 
Um, and so I think that it's good to have that kind of historical context and kind of go back and think about how that relates to today. And so that was that is one, if you're interested in labor history, that is the big tome to go for. And it's called? There's Power in a Union. There's Power in a Union. Um, I am going to plug uh, the best crisis book, in my opinion, um, is called The Devil's Derivatives by Nick Dunbar. Um, and he does the best job of explaining the finance behind the crisis, how it went wrong, why it went wrong, who these people are, what they did wrong. And the reason why this book is so much better than any of the other books is twofold. Uh, firstly, it's not a sort of finger-pointing TikTok. It's not, uh, it's not, there are no sort of heroes who come in to save the day. There are no massive villains who sort of, through their malfeasance, wound up blowing up the world. It, this, is, this is a subtle tale of, you know, a lot of people making a lot of errors in relatively rational kind of ways. Um, but more to the point, m the vast majority of crisis books got written after the crisis by big-name financial journalists who didn't really see what was going on before the crisis and then afterwards said, oh, wow, what just happened? And they would go along to the CEOs of the big banks and say, what just happened? And the CEOs would give them their story and they would write it down. And The Devil's Derivatives is exactly the other way around, that Nick Dunbar was in the trenches. He was a reporter for Risk magazine, and he understood all of the stuff about structured products and the investors and the brokers and who was structuring these things and why they were structuring them and how they were structuring them and where the scandals were. And he was talking to people, not at the very top, not, not to the CEOs, but he was talking to the mid-level and junior-level people who really understood how the sausage was made. And he was doing it contemporaneously while it was going on. So rather than talking to these people after the fact and saying, what was going on? And they give you some sort of self-serving story. He was doing it at the time and no one else was doing that. So he has that story and he's written it and I can highly recommend it. It's called The Devil's Derivatives by Nick Dunbar. So there, um, Mr. Katz, are your four books, um, Liars Poker, Unions, Bankers News Clothes, Devil's Derivatives, um, enjoy your slate money reading list, which brings us to the numbers round. It's going to be another fun numbers round with four. We had four books. We're going to have four numbers. Uh, Kathy. Well, I'm going to go first just in case Jake has the same number. Um, <laughs> so I've actually stolen my number from him, from his book. It's 0 0.02. Uh, 2%. Two, so it goes back to the regulator that we were talking about, the regulator that's supposed to regulate the debt market as well as like the mortgage market and any other thing that's consumer facing consumer financial protection bureau they have their budget their yearly budget is two percent of the money that jp morgan sets aside for lawyers a year two percent also for paying legal fee or for paying legal settlements for, as well okay for, for the legal whole legal <laughs> if you want um, to make it a little bit better okay but still it's like basically a, a just a bank account at jp morgan chase and it's two uh, percent of that is the entire budget for the cfpb so next time people complain about government not you know not being competent i'll just make the point that they're super underfunded as well so just to be clear here kathy 
what J.P. Morgan spends in one year yes, on in 2013, legal I should have said that. In 2013. In 20, one year annual set aside for lawyers and legal fees is 2% of that is the annual budget for CFPB. So it's apples to apples. Jordan. In all fairness, they were paying a lot of money. To, or they were expecting to pay a lot of money to the government that year. It is still horrifying. <laughs> that is, um, my number is $1. Um, that was Netflix's price hike in May. Um, which they seem to think has uh, really crushed their membership growth. Uh, earlier this week, uh, they announced that in the U.S., they had added 1 million new subscribers last quarter instead of 1.3 million as they had a year before. Um, the stock fell 25% after hours immediately. People are now fear, you know, people are now, or investors are now worried about exactly its, its growth prospects. Um, and what this tells us is just how uncertain this whole future of uh, online streaming a la carte TV really is, how new the economics are, and kind of what a brave new world we're uh, heading into with it. Uh, so, yes, $1. Can I just throw in, like, when I read that, I read that too. Yeah. First of all, they're still getting a lot of new subscribers. They are. So, and the other thing is that isn't like HBO unbundling? Um, so, I mean, that's a big yeah, a, deal. A lot, of the, a lot of the stock price fall was a function of this news that HBO is going to com- compete with Netflix directly for you know the people who just have a, a an internet book that is happening too i think the issue of price sensitivity though is, is important because it's dire- it deals directly with how much profit they can make selling their services uh to uh, cord cutters essentially my number is 350 i got this quite recently from mr yancy strickler the ceo of kickstarter and he said that there are 350 people on Kickstarter, who have supported more than 50 different Kickstarter projects just in the past two months. So they're addicts. There's this... (laughs) They just love really useless gadgets. Are they... they, Or or they're like online Medici. Well, no, uh, they they are. It's it's the new patronage. And frankly, it's really not about the gadgets. Like, Kickstarter is not... It's... it's, At one point, I called it um, SkyMall for vaporware. But the... (laughs) But... That's what. That's not what most of these people are supporting. This is the core Kickstarter supporters who are supporting records, films, books, you know, creative projects, plays, um, and yeah, they, there'll be some kind of a knickknack or a gugor that they wind up with, um, you know, at the end, possibly, maybe, hopefully. But that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because they find this is a very. Um, like emotionally fulfilling way of supporting creative people. I, I just want to say that I love Sky Mall so much. I love Sky Mall catalogs so much that you've made me want to be one of those people for Kickstarter. Now, you've just made Kickstarter a lot better for me. Thank you. <laughs> Jake, you get the last number. Okay, so this is a little obscure, but I think that it's good for our books uh, episode. So the number is 26, and, and, and here's, here's the story. Um, the Wall Street Journal did a piece looking at the big books of the last few months and seeing how many people actually read the books they purchased. Oh, I love this study. And so what they, the way they measured it was they looked at the, you know, like when you get a Kindle version, you can highlight the text. So they looked at the five most popular highlights in each book, and they saw where in the book they were. And then if they were all, you know, some of them were spread out over the book, but in many cases, the highlights all occurred early on in the book. 
And based on that, they made this assessment of which books they think were being read and which one weren't. And the most popular book that wasn't read was the great economic blockbuster, which I'm going to get this Capital. right. Capital. Capital of the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. And it's a 700-page book, and the top five highlights were all within the first 26 pages. <laughs> so this giant tome of a book, it, was this, it appears just the narrowest slice off the top end was being read, which um, – is, I don't know, kind of sad as someone who's written a book in the economic space. Hopefully I make it at least to page 36. As, so, as someone who has tried to wade through capital myself, there's no comparison. And there are no polygamists in capital, <laughs> which is really, I, that might have actually gotten people at least to yeah. page 40. <laughs> that would have... it's, it's, hard, it's hard to read books without narrative. That's, that's one of the other lessons that we, we are learning here. And so... Pro tip to all of our listeners out there who are thinking of writing a book, try and put some narrative in it because it makes it so much easier to read. Uh, But that's it. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. And a big thanks to both Jake and John for stopping by to talk about their books. If you like the show, please subscribe in the iTunes store and leave us a review to help spread the word about the show. And do keep on writing to us with your comments and questions and complaints. The email address is sleetmoney at slate.com. We love your letters and questions. The producer for Slate Money this week is Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman and John Lanchester and Jake Halvin, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.